Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. March 5th, 2022, episode 222, Triple Deuce. Hello, everyone. Welcome into the Beekeeper's Corner. We like to think about the show as two beekeepers sitting down to chat. Sometimes it's me and another beekeeper, and other times it's me sitting with you, so to speak. Now, whether we're two beekeepers at a bar, two beekeepers at a bowling alley, more on that in a bit, or two beekeepers sitting over coffee or tea, it's just fun to have friends in beekeeping around to chit-chat about what's on our mind. So we're in the corner once again, and we have some things to share. Spring approaches and the season excitement builds for us in New Jersey. This time of year transitions into the activities of the winter meeting is behind us. There are new beekeeper training courses going on, and, well, we're seeing bees flying now and again, collecting the early season nectar and pollen and creating that buzz that gets us out of our winter mindset. I've been heads down these past few weeks writing, prepping, recording content for new beekeepers as I've spoken about in the past few shows. Day by day, I'm revising and reposting the content to managedmentoring.com, the website to support new beekeepers. I feel like I'm in a groove and more caught up and actually in the zone, and I hope that if you are new, you take a moment to peek at the lesson plans in hopes to knowing that we're there to support your effort so you don't have to struggle when getting ahead in beekeeping. If you missed the URL, managedmentoring.com, look at the MM program link for an overview of the program and what we have to offer. Now to the business at hand. Today's episode is a mix of odds and ends, and it has a few helpful tips throughout for this time of year. Roundtable number one, you'll find yourself staring at a swarm hanging from a branch, and you surely would not want to see them fly away. A tip for slowing them down. Roundtable number two, the smell of the rain. Something we learned at the NJBA winter meeting. For number three, some sad news to share. The inventor of the Schmidt Sting Index has passed away. Roundtable number four, a sugar solution experiment that involves food coloring. Number five, when should you expect the business of swarming to pick up in your area? I share my thoughts on the timing from down south all the way north to Maine. This is where I say not done yet. Roundtable number six. If you do not like burcomb all over your frames, I have a tip to share by way of New Jersey master beekeeper John Gott. Number seven, an aside about spring meetings and opportunities for learning. Number eight, oh yeah, keeps going. Native Mason beehives over breakfast. Number nine, for new beekeepers and seasoned beekeepers alike, keep abreast of your location's regulations. Now, that's a pile of things to talk about, but I'm not finished. This is where I get to say, but wait, there's more. I had a sit down with Cornell Master Beekeeper Jean Miller, and we discussed some of her trips abroad as she talked about her experiences on a recent trip to Thailand. All of it's capped off with a local hive report, and well, I think you're going to get your money's worth this go around. Before we head in, www.bkcorner.org is the website. 
Look for show 222 to see the notes. And if you ever have questions about things we talk about, I'm an email away. Kevin at bkcorner.org. Here we go. Roundtable number one. Call this one cool. For roundtable number one, this one's just a simple tip. This one comes by way of Tom Seeley in a talk that he gave at EAS. I think it's a great one to throw in here due to the fact that swarm season is approaching. During one of Tom's talks, he mentioned a tip that if you're staring at a swarm and concerned that the swarm is going to fly away, one of the things you can do to slow their departure is spray the swarming bees with some cool water. Mm. By cool water, I think probably he meant temperature, not literally cold water. If you think about it, bees operate in the 90 degree Fahrenheit temperature, and it's probably whatever the ambient temperature is. That's what I'm thinking. The premise of this makes me start to postulate why this would work, because that's what I'm about. Why? I want to know why. I don't know what Tom did, whether he went into any great amount of detail as to the biology, and if he did, I can't recall what he mentioned. So it leaves me at this point in time while I'm reminiscing to think about it and try and postulate my own answer. From a 50,000 foot view, I would venture to guess that there's two probable mechanisms of action. The first would be that the bees would likely be preoccupied with having to groom themselves to get the water off their bodies. The second and likely more important biological input is that it would cool the bees down and they would have to rewarm themselves in anticipation of having their flight muscles warmed up sufficiently to take flight. Whatever the case, it's an interesting tip that I didn't want to let pass by. And, well, it could have been a little bit useful on a handful of occasions over the last decade for us. I recall this past spring, in fact, standing with a beekeeper who went to go muster his equipment after we saw a massive swarm on a tree, only to find that when we returned with his boxes, the swarm had flown away. If only we had known this tip, we probably could have sprayed them down and he would have successfully housed that swarm. So have a spray bottle with a little bit of water ambient temperature and if you get to a swarm spot and you're still trying to get your stuff together give them a little spray and i recall tom saying you just keep spraying them until you get them in the box and that'll keep them settled down round table number two i call this one billy osmond I'll get to why in a moment. This roundtable was spurred by a talk given at the NJBA winter meeting by Josue Feliciano on watering sources. As to the name, I hope I pronounced it correctly. I tried to figure that out. J-O-S-U-E is how you spell Josue's name. And I think I have it right, but if not, forgive me. The premise of the talk was centered on the constituents of water that attract bees, and it led to a presentation on how to build a water feature, in this case a pond on a property that would lure honeybees and be all the things you want in a pond feature on your property. Fish, 
pretty plants, no mosquitoes, and more and more. We happen to have some small homemade ponds on our property, and since this is a beekeeping podcast, I'm not going to review that part of the learning. But I did find the opening of the talk fascinating as it provides some core learning about what attracts bees to water. Water. This is an interesting topic for this time of year as now is the time to prepare a water source for your bees in the spring so that they go to the intended place and not your neighbor's pool come Memorial Day. You know, the traditional weekend where many northerners open in their pools. We know that some plain water often does not do much into attracting bees. Said another way, they will often prefer some water that has some odor to it, and they are quite drawn to things by volatile odors. This is nothing new and has been talked about for a long time on the show. So the aha moment, I'm going to tease you just a little bit. A question, does rain have a smell? Close your eyes and conjure up the smell of the rain. Have you ever given that some thought? I thought it was brilliant that Josue introduced us to the Greek word geosimen. In some respects, this is the term that describes, quote-unquote, the smell of the rain. Geosimen is defined as a volatile organic compound... C12H22O that is formed especially by soil dwelling bacteria. This compound results in a distinctive, earthy, usually pleasant odor that is typically associated with rainfall, especially after a long, lengthy, warm, dry period. Now, there's a term for this odor, it's called petrichor. This phenomena is kind of special for us as humans because in this case, like our bees, our smell receptors have evolved to be attuned to this. Josue suggested that this might have had some evolutionary benefits to humans as it drew us to the fertile lands and we're really attuned to it, but the reason the actual backstory is not very well known. Think for a moment about the statement just said, the phrase usually pleasant. If you think about the smell of water you have encountered, stream water has that pleasant earthy smell, but sometimes water can have a funky, musty taste and smell, and who hasn't encountered water that has, say, sulfur overtones? The smell of water likely has to do with the bacteria involved and what it manifests to. But the takeaway here is the volatile compounds are attractants in so many ways to the bees. It was explained that when rain hits the ground, it atomizes the oils and constituents on the ground and it wafts in the air. And this is what the bees and humans can detect. And it kind of explains why plain water is not as quote unquote discoverable. You only need to think back to the times when you're spraying plants in your garden with a hose and in short order, you start spotting interest from water scout bees. They weren't there a moment ago. Next thing you know, there's bees flying around. It kind of connects the dots, doesn't it? The water is atomizing the oils in the grounds of the soils of your 
plants and whatever in the garden. And it's powerful enough that the honeybees flying through the space detect it and come and inspect what's going on. And this also explains why bees can find fountains and dripping water features and ponds and other things that are more attractive to bees, including, let's say, the volatiles giving off from animal urine and poop that's drying and all the things that we are squeamish about, but they have odors to them. It's kind of a neat piece of discovery, given some terminology to the geosamin and the petrichor piece of it. I, I find that fascinating and appreciate the learning and I, I love this kind of stuff. Now, as to Billy Osmond, I, I can't remember this geosamin term. I've been trying to lock it in ever since they said it. At the Flemington Speedway, one of the superstar racers was Billy Osmond. And geosamin and Osmond sound close. And that helps me to know how to pronounce it because I was trying to figure this out to tell somebody about this the other day. And for the life of me, I couldn't remember. And now I've made the connection. I'm sorry, that doesn't help you very much, but <laughs> it just shows a little of how my brain works. Moving on. Roundtable number three is kind of one of those sad news moments. Justin O. Schmidt passed away recently, February 18th, 2023. This has kind of been circulated recently amongst master beekeepers and others. Remembering that Justin was the person who is the entomologist and creator of the Schmidt Sting Pain Index. And he passed away after a battle with Parkinson's disease. This is the gentleman that wrote The Sting of the Wild, a book partly known for, where he was more known for this Sting Index, where he stung himself and rated it kind of like the Scoville scale of how hot a pepper is and capsaicin and all of those things. Uh, he's been stung by over 150 venomous insects and basically described what that felt like, but also talked about the places where you can be stung on your body and what's more susceptible and so on, including the nether regions, which you know, made a lot of noise when the time came. But I personally think one of the worst places to be stung, two of them, of course, head and neck, uh, on the ear, anywhere on the ear, and in the inside of your nose. Lips are no fun either. You lean forward on your mask, you know, you have a veil on, and you lean against the screen, and the bee stings your face through it. They get your lips every once in a while. That's not a lot of fun. But stinging on the inside of the nose, ooh, that's an ouchie. So thanks to and remembrance to Justin Schmidt and the Schmidt Sting Index, uh, we appreciate the work that he had, and it will live on forever. Um, this is a, such a unique body of work that he contributed, and it's always um, sad to say goodbye, but also uh, pleasant to remember that this person did so much for us, and we appreciate that from them. Roundtable number four, Telltale Signs. 
Facebook is one of those mixed bag things. There's a lot of things on Facebook as a beekeeper that I kind of roll my eyes at and groan and feel sorry for the people who are inflicting in different things. But there are truly some useful beekeeping places in the world of Facebook for beekeeping. One such place is beekeeping hacks. I love this group. Uh, there's always some really creative things. Some of them are clunkers, but every once in a while, uh, you see something that's just genius or brilliant, and other ones are just, you know, kind of fascinating in their own way. Case in point, there was a post by member Roger Toll about mixing up sugar solutions for bees, and as he created them, he added some food coloring. As evidence, he had pictures of what the bees did with the food that he fed them. And not only did he use one food color, but he used a couple different food colors over a period of time. And he was able to see what the bees were doing with them. The net result when feeding is tinted storage areas in comb before it got capped. And the photos clearly showed where the sugar solutions were being stored in the cells by the bees. Taking this down the rabbit hole, there's some interesting considerations to think about that. The first thing is, given the storage of the food looks like light bright in the cells, I would wonder if it would show up in the honey supers. And in this case, when you talk about adulterated honey or people feeding honey and not realizing that they're harvesting funny honey, which is actually sugar solution, this would show up in your extraction process, It would be my guess. Um, it is super easy, given what he's doing, to say, yep, there's a blue one, there's a green one, there's a red one, whatever food color you happen to be using. And I thought that was a rather interesting um, experiment. And, and wonder if maybe trying this this year to see how that works. Didn't you ever wonder when they pull all that stuff down where they put it? I thought this could actually provide useful to learn a little bit of the biology of the bees, what they do with it. You know, there are some assumptions in certain circles that the bees actually eat the stuff that we feed and don't store it. But clearly the case here is you could see that they were storing it. I think that's kind of an interesting thing to learn about. Now, I would assume that you would feed the bees internal to the hive, and that begs the question, would other hives in the apiary show any signs of finding this colorful food? You know, we all assume that bees go out, they forage, they come back, and they stay kind of as a unit. We know that each bee... Uh, colony has its own smell and therefore they probably keep to themselves. But I think there's a lot of underestimated generalities towards that type of thing. Could a neighbor bee get into a hive, spend a little time, eat a little food, bring it back to their colony and store it in their home base? I bet it happens more than we think. And this would answer the question. If you fed a, one hive internally, would that color show up in any of your hives? Now, obviously, if you had some sort of problem, the bees succumbed to an issue and, you know, they got robbed out, then, of course, it's going to show up in your other hives. Uh, Kevin moment. <laughs> I can picture a moment where a neighbor near you says, Hey, guess what I found in my boxes? Did you find any green food? The question is, do you come clean? 
end of Kevin moment. I don't know. Again, from a beekeeping hacks standpoint, I thought this was kind of cool. And yeah, maybe I'm going to have to head over to the food coloring aisle in ShopRite. I know red food coloring is evil, but we won't go there, folks. Round table number five. I call this one, is it time yet? As we sit here on March 5th, we start to recognize that swarm season is right around the corner. I saw the first official I captured a swarm somewhere from down south on a Facebook page just yesterday. This is the time when people, especially second year beekeepers, start to ask themselves, what do I need to do in order to prevent swarming? And when does swarming start? That in itself is the exploration. Is it time yet? We did uh, research, this is super small subset, but enough to gather enough evidence that it has borne fruit. In New Jersey, a couple years back, I hosted a survey for multiple years in a row asking beekeepers, just simply tell us what your swarm was. Um, if you've not listened to the back catalog, this thing was called the New Jersey Swarm Report. I think 2016, we kind of shut it down, but we had gathered enough evidence to get information about that in New Jersey. And if you had a drum roll, you would find that swarming the incidental once in a lifetime, this is the beginning, happened sometime in mid-March. The actual swarms, given the weather, depending on how things go, typically start first week of April here in New Jersey. And it doesn't matter whether you're in Sussex County in the north or Burlington down in the south or somewhere in between. One of the data sets that we figured out was New Jersey didn't di differentiate. In the opening of swarm season, the first one could come from Jersey Cape, but the other one might be from Bayonne. And they bounced back and forth across the zone. It wasn't like it swept from down by the Delaware Bay and Philadelphia area up to Newark in the area north of, you know, uh, New York City. It just explodes and it happens all at once. That was the data that we learned from the, the samples that we got from people reporting swarms real time. Now, what I know about swarm timing is the role of swarms comes from the south. You start to see reports from Tennessee. You start to see reports coming out of Virginia, north to Maryland, Delaware, and so on. The span is only about a month. They warm up some of those southern states about a month earlier than us. So March 15th, and this is loose and fast, trust me. But generally, March 15th, that's when we start to see noise and we get excited. The key time frame for us here in New Jersey is April 15th. That's game on. And it runs from April 15th to July 4th. The proper way to think about this is swarm triggers and swarm indicators in order for a colony to swarm, the queen has to leave and the new queen has to mate with something. And that means the presence of drones is the 
one of the primary keys. The other thing is when the swarm leaves, they need to build a new home and they need wax builders. And the wax builders in anticipation of leaving are leaving you little presents of wax deposits along the frames and in the errant areas. So if you're a new beekeeper, as soon as you start to see drones in your area, you know that swarming is imminent. That's kind of a like this is game on time in the next week or so. Now, one of the interesting things we heard at EIS is swarm season starts May 15th in Maine. Hmm. If I do the math, March 15th down south-ish, Virginia, Tennessee, North Carolina. And I'd be curious if you're from that region, do you agree with that? Send me a note, Kevin at bkcorner.org. But from the people that I talk to, that's generally, and by the way, that's a large swath of land that I gave, but I'm, I'm being loose and fast here to just say March 15th down south, April 15th, Jersey, Pennsylvania, New York, May 15th for Maine, New Hampshire, Northern. So you can kind of picture how that progresses across the top. We thought that swarming season would be coming across week by week by week. And I guess if you think of it that way, the span of two months, it happens from down south to up north when the weather switches over. So I thought that was kind of interesting. And if you're somewhere between New Jersey and Maine, you can kind of guess how that works, split the difference on distance and, you know, maybe halfway between April 15th and May 15th, that's when your swarm season is going to run. Everybody's condition is local, so just keep that in mind. But uh, I thought that was an interesting little tidbit shared by Erin McGregor Forbes when she was talking about when swarm season is game on for them up there in Maine. All the way up there in Maine, eh? Yeah. So round table number six, I just took a little break to get a little breakfast. My lovely wife prepared for me an egg on English muffin. We were having a conversation about something we've been doing. We've been cleaning the garden out and getting it ready, the vegetable garden. And right next to it, we have a device. How long has that been there? Two, three years? A few years, yes. It's a mason beehive, but really it's just kind of a native bee hive. And the point of it is, is it's just a bunch of different tubes. And every year this time of year when we start working on cleaning things out, you and I take a look at what's in there. Um, you had said that they collect grass and other things. Yeah, if you look in the tubes, you see some are packed with like dirt or mud. Some are packed like they're wrapped in grassy or weeds type of um, material. So a lot of beekeepers get into beekeeping for the purpose of they want to improve the plants in their property. And while bees are great at that, they typically fly away from your property in truth. I mean, we certainly find them pollinating our plants here on the property, but if you really want good propagation of your local plants on your property, these native nests are really the good way to go. And sometimes people take 
pieces of wood and they drill holes in them. And that, that is just an easy way to create one of these. I know, uh, did you ever see the one that Bob Kloss made? No. He had this big block of wood and he just drilled a bunch of yes, holes and he set it out great. behind the hive. All the same size holes or did he do different size holes? Um, I don't know, but that is a tip, right? Is that different critters can live and cohabitate yeah. in these things. Yeah. And they like different sizes. So it's incumbent upon you, my dear Sharon, to <laughs> take a look at them as you go out to the vegetable garden, because I don't get out there much and see what you see flying in and out. Mm -hmm. Maybe we can try and get some pictures of them. Sure. But it's a good time to hang one up. Usually you, it's better to hang them in the fall, but even now you were saying, which is one of the reasons I went and grabbed the phone. Yeah, well, some will overwinter, I guess, uh, whatever insects are in there, and some will start laying and packing yeah, they come out of the ground this time now. of year. Yeah, and they start building nests. And and I believe they use it all, all year round. Yeah, I agree with you. I've seen different, them. Different insects. Well, thank you for breakfast and thank you for this little chat. Appreciate it. <laughs> Have a wonderful day. Yes. <laughs> Back downstairs in the man cave. My wife so adorable. Hmm. Roundtable number seven, this one comes from New Jersey Master Beekeeper John Gott. He was talking about uh, different topics at EAS this year. And one of the things he said that comes for this time of year, I, I love to bring things in a timely manner. Sometimes I squirrel things away and wait for the day to, to break them open. This little tip was, this is the perfect time to add a drone brood frame. And the purpose of that adding a drone brood frame early in the season is a lot of times in the spring, as we just mentioned a moment ago with the wax builders, but just in general, the bees are moving wax around. They're taking care of cleaning up their house. They're doing hygiene. They're doing all these things. And you'll find that if there is any open space or any areas where they deem warranted, they will build errant comb, burr comb, Maybe on the bottom of the frames, maybe on the top of the frames, maybe on the inside edges of the boxes, things like that. John's tip is add a drone brood frame. When they're building comb for the drone brood frame, and what I'm talking about is one of those green Purco ones, that's the type of frame that they will build it all out there. And if they have a place to expend their energy, they're not going to build it in all over the place and glue your boxes together. I think that's kind of interesting. Uh, while I'm talking about that, one of the things that I like to do for my colonies is keep them clean. This is the time of year where all of the propolis that's inside the boxes is rather stiff, relatively stiff, meaning it's cold. It's usually easy to clean off. You have to strike a balance on this, but um, I like to keep at least my frames clean of propolis so that in the time when I want to do hive inspections and I go to extract a frame, they're not so wedged and, and mucked up that they're hard to pull and you're crushing bees and having the problems. Throughout the year, as you work your bees, uh, we've talked about how to approach a hive inspection, which is pull frame number two, put it in a hanger or quiet box and then pull all the frames into the gap. 
as you're doing that, if you have your hive tool, as you go in to extract the frame, just slide it down the shoulder and scrape off that propolis. Now, don't be dilly-dallying in the cold days of early spring, but when the weather breaks, it's the perfect time to clean that stuff up. So, in the case of what John's talking about, maintenance, keep the burr comb out of your hives, and the tip that I just gave, I like to keep the shoulders clean so the frames are always free when you go back in there. I've been in beekeeper hives that they never clean the propolis off the shoulders of the frames where they touch against each other and you need a sledgehammer to pry the things out of there. It's incredible how locked up a colony can be with it has some neglect. Uh, state your business and get off the phone, right? That's what my father used to say when we used to pay for long distance service. You would want to get in and get out of your hives as quickly as possible. This is a time of year where you start to think about those things that you do in your management practice to make your operation uh, work like a you know, well-oiled machine. Good tip there, John. Appreciate that one. Roundtable number eight, call this one making the rounds. Roundtable number eight, don't get into that territory very, very much. Uh, you know, this is one of those things that we try to do every spring in order to continue our understanding of bees. We're in ever quest of learning and typically Bob Kloss and I head east, west, south, north, wherever we need to go to find some beekeeping meetings and springs are usually a good time for that. Uh, one of our favorite ones is the Chesco uh, Chester County, Pennsylvania one, and, you know, we've been to that a good number of years. They put on a spectacular show, and ChescoBees.org, they have their conference coming up on April 1st. I'm kind of disappointed, but understand that they're running it through Zoom. Uh, you could sign on and watch it all day long. I tend to find that if I'm watching something on the side and sitting at my computer, I, I have the attention span of a gnat and can't do very well with that. If I'm sitting in a room, I am far more tuned into what's going on. And, well, I'm, I'm deliberating whether I'm going to sign up for that one or not. Uh, when it comes to other meetings, usually the Philadelphia Beekeepers Guild puts something on. I've seen some amazing speakers through that venue, and I'm looking at their calendar and, you know, just looking to see if you know of anything coming up that's in the tri-state area. Uh, send me a note. Where do you go in the spring to go to different meetings? One thing that we do have coming up on the calendar this weekend, in fact, is Sharon and I are going to go to the Philadelphia Flower Show. It's been years since we've gone to that. And, you know, there there's a time when you go to that show and you say, been there and done that, and you don't really want to go back anymore. But it's been so long since we've been there that we thought this would be a neat year to go back and get reacquainted with it. It's always an interesting thing for me because I'm terrible when it comes to plants and how that interacts. And I try to absorb as much as I can by the immersion into that experience there of the plants and the trees and looking at things. Good time to get reacquainted. I also have my eye spy out because almost every single time we go there, there's one or two features that have something to do with beekeeping, and I love to look at the display and learn and hear what they have going on. Uh, of course, it doesn't hurt that you could walk right next door and go to the Reading Terminal Market and get some amazing food and enjoy the ambiance of Center City, Philadelphia. Uh, yeah, 
it's a fun place to go to. I, you know, being someone from New Jersey that's halfway between New York City and Philadelphia, we always went to New York. We very rarely went to Philadelphia, but in my older years, I've connected with Philadelphia and enjoy wandering around the different things that they have to offer there. And there's so much to see. And, you know, you could take in the flower show on one day and go over and see the Liberty Bell and City Hall and things like that on another day and make a weekend of it if you're so inclined. Uh, Typically, when it comes to selling tickets to the flower show, once they're started, you can't buy them. But it seems like this year, if you hurry up, like today, you might be able to buy some and get in there if you're interested. If not, maybe you circle that next year on your calendar and go take that in. It's it's usually worth the price of admission. So you can probably tell by the style of recording that I'm just kind of doing things ad hoc off the top of my head this morning as I record this in preparation for the show. This is uh, the way it goes sometimes. And as such, I don't have a prepared topic. So I'm going to give you round table number nine. I'm in the midst of creating all the content switchover for managementoring.com. Uh, the two-year program to teach beekeepers how to become a competent beekeeper. That's an add-on to what you might get from a short course or a beginner's beekeeper course. Um, to lesson number 14, adherence to regulations, I wanted to share this with anybody who's getting started. One of the tips that you should consider as a new beekeeper is making sure that you're on the up and up when it comes to following the rules in your state, your location. And a lot of people struggle with where do I go look for this? I'm going to give you a link and there'll also be a link in the show notes, apiaryinspectors.org slash state laws. If you go to that web address, you will find a link to all the United States laws along with the U.S. territories. So to say that again, apiaryinspectors.org, all one word, apiaryinspectors, slash state-laws. If you go there, you'll find a listing of all the states. You can click on the one for Rhode Island and South Carolina and Vermont and whatever, Washington, D.C. and such. You know, if you're from New Jersey, like us, it in, just using this illustratively, there's a bunch of different regulations that you really need to be familiar with. New Jersey recently put some additional ones in place. You need to register your hives. You need to label your hives that you have uh, claimed ownership for them and such. You need to take some beginner beekeeping training and have a certificate and such. Uh, If you go to the New Jersey page, for example, and look at the statutes and the New Jersey one, sorry, Department of Ag, is a little bit wonky. You go to the general page for bee inspection at the state and you have to scroll through and go to the section that says New Jersey statutes. There you'll see New Jersey Bee Law, Title II, Chapter 24, Diseases of Bees, Quarantines, New Jersey Bee Legislation. Those four links take you to the places where you need to study up on what you need to know. Um, What might you find there? Regulations dictate how many hives you can have on a property. 
Uh, we always say that you should start out with two, but people sometimes want more. And regulations say that, let's see, what else? Well, wait, let me say this. There's not only these laws, there's the cottage laws in New Jersey. And almost every state, I think there's only one now that doesn't have cottage laws, also pertain to sale of products and such. So even if you're an established beekeeper and you're in the context of selling products of the hive, there's some laws and regulations that you need to know about. So this is not to belabor the point, but if you are interested in knowing what's going on, apiaryinspectors.org slash state dash laws is the web address you want. You know, there's a bunch of different websites out there that tell you this, but this one has been the most persistent that I've seen, and they do have a link to everybody's state laws. And for me, it's uh, better to give out a URL that I think is going to stand the test of time. And thanks to the apiary inspectors for having that out there. Uh, it's a really valuable resource. And one of the things as a beekeeper, not only should you go look at the laws, but you should keep up with the laws. Every once in a while, it would behoove you to spend a little time going back through and getting familiar with them and look for any changes and updates because they do change. They're fluid. And you want to make sure that you're with the program, so to speak. One of the key things about this as a new beekeeper or an established beekeeper is should you run afoul of any difficulties, if you're following the letter of the law, you're defensible. What I mean by that is the state apiarist or other people can look and see that you've made the honest effort to one, uh, educate yourself on this and know what the statutes are, and two, follow them. That you're adhering to the setbacks and registering your bees and doing all of that stuff. This is a time of year where it kind of slips your mind, but before you dive into the season, get that stuff out of the way and make sure that you're on the up and up and you know, it's it's a good answer. Now, there's one last thing I want to talk about, which is if you have questions, we always recommend, this is just our take on this, that you go talk to your local beekeepers. Talk to your local beekeepers association. Talk to the state association. We really don't think it's a great tactic to go ask your municipal officials. One, they generally don't know what's going on. Now, I say that with a smile. I happen to know are local officials in my hometown. It's just who I am and what I do. In fact, the most previous mayor, his property <laughs> butts up against mine. So I know him uh, very well. He's physically a neighbor of mine. But if I went to go discuss beekeeping with them and laws and so on, they're more interested in protecting the public from stinging insects than protecting your rights as a beekeeper. Sorry to put it that way, but that's just my IMO, in my opinion. And you'd be better off asking some of these questions of your local associations and get answers from people who've been around the block a while and understand how to do these things than to go ask a municipal official who has to come and deem an answer. This is just something you've heard me say over the years. And given we have new crops of beekeepers show up here in the spring, uh, I like to reiterate the, this public service announcement, if that's the way you perceive it, and give you some guidance on how to proceed. Lesson number 14, adherence to regulations, is one of the lessons of 75 in the managementmentoring.com program. And there's some additional guidance that I didn't drain this one in there. Um, if you want to go watch the lesson, it'll be up shortly.
I said a moment ago I didn't prepare any topics. I was kind of doing things ad hoc, but I did have an expectation that on the back end of this show, I wanted to bring you a feature of an interview that I conducted with Gene Miller. Gene is one of the beekeepers part of the Northwest New Jersey branch family. And Gene is quite active at doing beekeeping education, public outreach, and other tasks. And it demonstrates the depth of people who are working behind the scenes for Northwest to educate beekeepers. And she's just another example of somebody doing a great job. I sat down with Jean last summer while we were at EAS to discuss with her a recent trip that she had taken with Cameron Jack and others to Thailand. I wanted to uh, ask her a couple of questions about that. And with no further introduction, I'll let you listen to what we talked about. So today I'm going to sit down with Jean Miller. I've known Jean for a long time. Jean's part of our Northwest New Jersey Beekeepers Association. Uh, she's not only a hobby beekeeper, but she's traveled to different places. And today I wanted to talk about her trip to Thailand. But first I'll say, hi, welcome in. Hi, Kevin. Good to see you. Let's start with you as a beekeeper, just so everybody has a sense of who you are. I, I know you're a hobbyist beekeeper. You have a couple. Tell us what you do for your day job and a little bit about how long you've been keeping bees and how many bees you keep. Okay. Well, my day job is a full-time homemaker, but uh, in my prior life before motherhood, I was an engineer for Nestle Foods. Did that for many years. When our daughter was born, stopped to raise her, became a substitute teacher for 20 years. So I um, feel comfortable in the classroom, both as a student and teacher. And then uh, when she went off to college, I became a master gardener, learned about beekeeping through that, became a beekeeper. And then last year, I became a Cornell certified master beekeeper. So I keep about a dozen hives, no more, because I do not have time to manage yeah. more than a dozen properly. <laughs> and, and I know you, you're a person that's always on the go and everything is planned very well and you've been very clear that that's enough don't need anymore you have that you're like one of the most sane people when it comes to that that i know (laughs) (laughs) because most of us want more even though we can't deal with it so so i know let's start with uh, a couple things that i want to explore with you the first one is what we're going to talk about thailand you went to kenya with marion fraser um Yes. Twice, right? Yes, twice. So tell me a little bit about how did how did that hook up and what was the experience like? And um, well, the the hookup, let's say, was Marion was a speaker at EAS a number of years ago. I'm, I think it was New Jersey, and she was one of the last speakers. And she was giving a presentation on beekeeping in Kenya. And at the end of her presentation, she goes and she did a lot of, has done a lot of research there. Uh, she was asking if anyone was interested because she was planning to have a educators and beekeeper trip as opposed to, as opposed to like grad students to Kenya. So I eagerly shot my hand up and said, sign me up. So I went with her on her first and third How long were you there? I think both trips are, it was between one and two weeks, maybe 12, yeah. 13 days. Yeah. And we learned about um, the traditional beekeeping there in the, in the log hives. Some people call them gums. We, we met a, uh, a master log hive beekeeper. Yeah. Um, I remember you talking, what was his name? Do you remember? Not off the top of my head. I just remember how much of a savant the, the person was as you expressed yeah, it to us. It yeah, was... I'd have to look back on my records. He was adorable. Yeah. Um, and uh, yes, <clears throat> it was just fascinating to see how he actually made them from very basic tools and then um, how they um, hung them, how they harvested. It was just a great experience. So just recently you went to Thailand. 
Correct. And you called and said, I said, boy, I'd really like to go, but I don't know that I could take a month off. You were there for... It was hard. Yeah, we were yeah. we were there from mid-May to mid-June, which is really during swarming season. It's also during gardening season. Um, and that took a lot of preparation to get ready to go, uh, you know, try to mitigate swarming and stuff like that. So my husband wouldn't have to deal with anything when I was gone. Um, but the reason it was during that time is it was a study abroad program really through first real, real students, like 20 year olds at the University of Florida that uh, Dr. Jamie Ellis and Dr. Cameron Jack put together. And I kind of heard about this roundabout and just asked them, well, would you consider taking a non-degree seeking student, a super senior, let's say. So, so I said, sure. And then we traveled there and, and really got to, the main thing there is Thailand is kind of the hot spot of diversity when it comes to honeybees. Mm-hmm. There's nine to 11 honeybee species in the world, depending on which entomologist you talk to. So let's say around it, average it to 10. Five of them there are in Thailand, four native and one. one um, what schools we read about these in Dewey's book or whatever, yeah. you actually got to see, oh, them, which were, I, I know was a pursuit of yours, right? Before you were going, that was Absolutely. Really, I, mean, I really, I like to learn about practical beekeeping that I can apply at home, but I really also like to learn about beekeeping around the world, even though I'm not going to have apis dorsata or giant honeybees in my apiary. It's just still cool to see them. So it's almost like... I know the movie Perfect Storm doesn't have a good ending, but it was a perfect storm for you, right? Because here you are, you out with Cameron Jack, who is an up-and-comer. A lot of people really love what Cameron has to say and the work that he's doing down there. You associate with uh, Dr. Ellis there, and who's there doing trophy laylop stuff, but... Dr. Sammy Ramsey. Sammy Ramsey. <laughs> yes. I'm like, that was just dumb luck. <laughs> single, double, triple. <laughs> yeah, you know, great. that's great for you. I was so excited when you sent us a note about that. Yeah. There. That was a sweet surprise. Yeah, Sammy was finishing up about a five-month stint there at the University in Chonburi, and we came during his last three days, so he was generous enough to um, give us a few lectures on triple laps, and we had some labs, so we got to see the little buggers. They are fast. <laughs> and uh, talk to him about it. I, I have to mention, just to say hi to Bill Hesbeck, because yes. he went with you. He, he was did. the other super senior, right? He, he was did. another yeah, yes. keeper that we know. Yes, he did. Yeah. <laughs> so what was one of the more, uh, you were showing us a slideshow, which is how I came to know about this. Um, you said bee tree, and there's bees hanging. There, it's not a bee tree like, you know, bees living in a tree. It's a tree with bee, clumps of bees hanging all over. Correct. Tell us about some of the interesting things you saw there. Yeah, that was uh, that was really cool. The first time we saw um, Apis dorsata, it was it was a single, it's, it's huge. They're, they're a single sheet of comb. Um, anywhere from three to nine meters along a branch and just and just about as long one big drape um, and the first time we out started, in the open out in the open high in the tree and we had honey hunters that would climb the tree you got to see the video on some, sometime how they climb the tree to harvest the honey so dorsata and the two dwarf species um, andreniformis and um, Floria are all wild. They're not managed at all. Yeah. The other two, Serana and Mellifera, uh, can be both not wild or managed. But anyway, the giants and the dwarfs are, are all um, wild. So the first time you see these wild dorsata, they look like flying queens to me. They look like fully mated queens, the workers mm-hmm. that fly. They're just, they're huge. Um, and when they, the other cool thing is when they have a threat, they shimmer. All their, their, their they have Did like a wave. Did you get to see that? Yes. I've seen, that must have been, yes. I've always wanted to see that person. You it's see like that a wave. Like National Geographic. Yes. It's really cool. Like, yeah, it's like a bee wave yeah. across the cone. And that's 
they theorized. That's so cool. It was neat. It was really neat. And most of them were very docile. Unfortunately, the very first hive we came across was quite aggressive. I did not get stung. Dr. Ellis did not get stung. But a number of people got stung pretty badly. Yeah. Um, but Sting any different? I did not get stung by Dorsada. I did get At stung. all? You didn't get stung out there? I was trying to get Dorsada. <laughs> Jay, Jay, uh, Cameron uh, and, and, my, and myself, we had some Dorsada at a different site, and we were pushing them on us, trying to get to really? them, and they wouldn't sting us. How funny is that? But we did get stung, I did get stung by the, the dwarfs, and boy, the Adrenophorus uh, has a powerful little punch. One little thing, and bam, man, that hurts. But then it goes away, and then it's gone. But you talked about bee trees. Most of the um, dorsata are solitary. In fact, they'll be on structures, like uh, hanging on overhangs. They'll be on Buddhist temples. It's really cool. Oh, yeah. They're everywhere. But there are certain trees that are bee trees, and you might have a dozen, two dozen huge colonies near each other and they're trying to figure out if they're related or not if they're like daughter queens and you know um, they're not quite sure but they live very harmoniously that's kind of strange isn't it you know there's certain birds and bugs insects that that do that yeah like weaver birds and stuff how about that yeah I wonder if there's some sort of chemical scent being transferred between them all don't know they don't know yet so they they have a commercial industry uh, not, not with the wild. The wild ones are strictly like bee hunters that go out and hunt the bees. But they, did they take you to see any yes. professional beekeeper? Yes, they do. Yes. Have what prof- was that? Um, that it was uh, kind of like ours here. Use Langstroth? Um, Langstroth or Langstroth esque. <laughs> yeah, everybody used Langstroth esque, yes. not what we picture. Right. So, and, and the Saranas definitely um, don't. They, they abscond much more quickly. They are smaller colonies. They don't produce near the amount of honey that mellifera, and that's why they do have mellifera there, the yeah. western honeybee, mainly to um, really for major... Did serrana seem more aggressive to you? No. I did get stung by serrana. Yeah, I got stung by everything but the rosada, and it felt like a mellifera sting. They are a little faster. Mm-hmm. They, they, they move a little faster. They fly a little faster. They're slightly smaller, but they're almost hard to tell. Are they running on the cone? They're a little runnier, a yeah. little runnier than um, mellifera, but I can't say they're any more aggressive or anything. Um, and What was your sense of the beekeeper acumen? Did, did these people handle their bees really well? Like a Malawi, no, they, they don't, were a little. No, they don't manage it. Basically, so like in Kenya, the management is is minimal because yeah. most of these bees migrate, so they're not there for the long haul like ours. You know, they don't overwinter. So they're not keeping them. No, type thing. they're it, just. It's a tropical Using them while they're there. That's and, interesting. And I saw some managed bees in uh, well, uh, concrete, concrete um, tubes. That was pretty cool. That was, oh, another, yeah. that was another form of, of hive. It was a concrete tube with a concrete end cap that had holes drilled in it. And that they were set right into the ground in this hillside of a, of a, a jungly area. But when it comes to management, no. They're not test unless they're a research firm like, you know, a, a university. Right. The, your typical beekeeper is not testing for mites because they usually just abscond once, you know, once the nectar flow stops there and they go somewhere else. They're moving along, right? They move along. Same with Dorsada and Floria. 
How was the trip itself flying out there, staying with the students, your accommodations? You moved around, right? You we went did. To well, the first places. two weeks we did. The first two weeks we were at, at the University of Chambéry, um, and that was primarily lectures, so that wasn't too hard. Uh, yeah, flying there's a pain. That's a long. It's a long. long I've flown to India, and it's a long road. Long, long. It's like two long flights with a layover. Um, but then we were traveling around quite a bit. I had a blast with the youngsters, well, the, young, yeah. the young adults. Yeah, yeah. I, I really enjoyed their company. Um, some were more bee-centric than others, but um, the ones who were entomology students were. I learned just, I learned so much from them, just about the various type of insects. And we also came across land leeches, which land leeches are like water leeches. This was a surprise, unusual surprise. Oh, really? But they're on land. They're like inchworms that will climb right up your leg and leech onto you. And yes, we all got leached pretty much. Oh, really? Until we bought leech socks and then we didn't get leached. Uh, we thought it was What's a, a leech sock? How does that work? You take off your shoe. You have long pairs of uh, long pair of pants on. You take off your shoes. You slip these socks over your um, your feet. It goes up to where your knee is and you cinch them tight. Then you put your shoe back on. So basically there's no way for them to crawl up underneath your pant leg. Okay. And they're pretty effective, yeah. but they are fast, uh, and if you don't catch them, one girl had a leech climbed up all her legs. She didn't notice it, and she had it on her belly button. So <laughs> they can find them anywhere. I think what you told me is you have to leave them there until they fall off, right? You do. The only way to get them off is with acid, and uh, we had offers of the guys to pee on our legs if we had a problem. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but, yeah, I had one on my leg, and I ran back to the cabin, and it was engorged, but by the time I got there, it had fallen off. And you don't know they're biting you either, so it was, that's not a bee thing, but it was something to be aware of. Would a, would a normal purple person, you, you tend to be rather adventurous every run of the day person, go on this trip, do okay? Because uh, you had to have you had, constitution no. when you went to Malawi with us. Yeah, you had to have a sense of adventure. Yeah. This is not a five-star uh, hotel Although you do get good Thai massages there. You can get a great massage. My first <laughs> massage I ever had in my life was there. It was, worth, it was like $25, and people tell me it was, would be worth like $25. Well, you know, college students, they live in sparkling dorms that look like jail cells, so they, yeah. they could get used to. Yeah, yes. But you also have to be, you know, be okay with eating ethnic food and their squat toilets instead of Western toilets. Right. Not all yeah. the time, but so it's, it's an adventure. Yeah, we saw that in Africa. So... <laughs> So one of the things you did was brought home different types of honey. I and did. And we had a honey tasting in our meeting. So talk about what you brought back. I brought back uh, Avis dorsata honey that was harvested from one of those bee trees. In fact, it's kind of almost a little tourist site for that little uh, county. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they uh, they harvest the dorsata honey and then sell it. And that was pretty good, but it was a little, little moist. It was about 20% moisture. Then I bought two from a commercial beekeeper, uh, Logan and lychee honey. Those are two types of tropical fruits over there. Delicious. Yeah. Delicious. And then I brought home some stingless bee honey. We did see stingless bees, which are not in the apis uh, species. Um, that the ones that have the little tiny comb. Tiny right? comb that's very um, unorganized. They're looking. almost like sweat bees, if I could... Yes, but they do come in different. They're all tiny, they're but some sizes, are bigger right? but, than others. Um, but, and, but to give prepared, they're not the normal size of them. No, bee. they would we're be used to tiny, like a sweat bee. That's a good comparison. Yeah, yeah, about the size of a sweat bee, but not as um, metallic color. Floria, Floria, right? Floria is a beautiful. That's a beautiful little bee. That's a little bit bigger. It's it's the red dwarf, and it's um, it's 
abdomen, the, the top part of its abdomen near its thorax is kind of a rusty red color, and then mm -hmm. it gets striped. Beautiful little bee, really pretty. Um, they're all, they're very uh, abundant. They're all over the place. They're Apis mellifera. Was it mellifera mellifera or something? It, no, it was, it was like an Italian, like yeah, a okay. it, it was. They it was, look like they look like ours. Yeah, they look similar. Do they use foundation and all the same kind of setup? Or? Uh, a lot of times they don't. Uh, a lot of times it's just, uh, it depends on the beekeeper. I think the, the bigger commercial ones did. Yeah. The, your, your hobbyists did not. In fact, a lot of times for Serana, I saw them just building the comb right on the top of the lid. The on open of the lid, the lid yeah. and the comb's hanging off of it. There's no... They don't run an inner cover, right? They just... No. Lid on no. No did, it, did anybody put, like, cloth over top? No. The only pests that I saw them... Because uh, they didn't, don't have, like, the honey badgers like in Kenya or Malawi, but yeah. they do have ants, so they, like, grease up the poles or the wires or whatever if they're hanging it, or most of them are on poles or on stands. Um, they did... Oh, they did have a snail... There were, and I remember one beekeeper greased up his um, the pole that held his uh, hives because he had to, and we saw this, a land snail that would get into the colony. I don't think it would really cause a lot of havoc, but it could make the bees abscond more quickly. Uh, okay, yeah, because they come in and slime it up. <laughs> the, the, I remember coming back to the honey, the tasting. Some of them had different... They weren't your run-of-the-mill honey. Like, some of them had a little sour. Well, that was the stingless. The stingless <laughs> definitely had it has very high moisture content. It was like 24%. And I think they just like it for many. Yeah. Some, uh, yeah, it's... You know, almost, I don't want to say funky because that makes it sound bad. It was cool. Uh, by the way, how much honey did they make a year? Oh, the stingless? Like less than nothing, well, right? Like so the fact that you pound. had a jar was amazing. Oh, yeah. Well, you get the, you don't buy big jars. <laughs> yeah, so right. little jars. yeah, they make maybe a pound a year. Um, the dorsata, a good dorsata colony, will make as much as a mellifera colony. Okay. So for mellifera is the big, biggest one, producer. Dorsata is too, but you got to climb a tree to get to it. <laughs> it's yeah. harder to get to. Um, so that's why a lot of people keep the mellifera, because the, they make twice as much as, say, the serrana. So I know you and I, we both got to run to go to our next session. I should say, we're at EAS. So I know you and I have to get to our next session, and we're at EAS, by the way, in a dorm room recording. And I just want to say thanks for sharing this with us. Is there anything else that I didn't ask you about that I don't know? About the trip, um, well, if either you, Kenya or yeah, if you have an ex have an opportunity to do this, I know they're going to they plan to do this every two years. So this is through the University of Florida. Um, if you're interested, just keep a, an eye out for the entomology department. And they might not go back to Thailand. They might. Uh, I know they've talked about going to Brazil for stingless honeybees, South Africa because that's where Dr. Ellis did his postdoctorate work or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, but if you ever see the Thailand trip and really like a nice adventure and see half the honeybee species in the world, I highly recommend it. That would be so cool. I I know, does Marion still do her trips to Kenya? Marion stopped dur during COVID. Yeah. I hope she starts up again. And if she does, that's usually in January, which is a lot easier to go mm -hmm. for as a beekeeper. And it's usually less time. Uh, it's another one. It's Scutellata that you're interacting with pretty much, the, which is, again, another Western honeybee, but it's the African, African Western honeybee. Right, right. Um, that might be a, a good first step. I think, you know, we've talked about, I was in Kenya and mm -hmm. I saw hives and interacted with, but I didn't get to work any. When I was in South Africa, I got to work some with them. 
So I, I love the tickets, and who wouldn't love to spend a week with Marianne? Oh, she's, she's, so she's wonderful. <laughs> and then her counterpart is uh, Dr. Iliad Mooley. Yeah. Um, he's a professor in, in uh, one of the Nairobi uh, universities, and he is uh, just a joy to be with as well. Yeah. Thank you. You're I, welcome, I, you know, we've chatted about doing this, and we finally found the time to do it, and I really appreciate you taking the time. It's my pleasure. This was fun. Thank you very much. How cool is that? I, I had the opportunity to talk to Jean yesterday, actually, at the beekeeping course. She was there just kind of watching things going. Jean's going to uh, Spearhead in September, a Northwest first time in a long time beginner's course. And I don't know if she was there just auditing the course to take notes or whatever, but got to catch up with her and Bob and some others uh, while we were teaching the course. And... You know, again, uh, just just goes to show that there's so many people who have passion for beekeeping that live their life uh, exploring the different avenues and the places that it takes you. And that's a perfect example of um, just being adventurous and having a blast. And what an incredible experience. Uh, good for Jean. I'm glad she had a, a great trip. And, you know, hopefully there's more for her in the future. And I really appreciate that she took the time to take a moment and say hello to us and um, record that piece for us. It's it's really nice to hear from others about uh, things that they do and really enjoyed talking with her on that. You know, this is the point where I turn to the local hive report and just talk about what we have going on. I'll reiterate what I had said in the last episode is... And having this conversation yesterday with a couple of beekeepers, this is a really odd period of the year where winter's not over. Uh, typically, we wait till the beginning of April to declare victory. We have a number of warm days, two or three, that are in the 50s and 60s. And I see the bees out flying, collecting pollen on the crocus and such. Uh, but then as I look at the forecast for next week, Highs of 40 to 45, lows of 30s, and maybe even below that for the next week. And, you know, this is that time of year where I'm grateful for some of my colonies being in polystyrene hives and having that insulation to help them through to get to spring. Whether that really makes a material difference or not, or not it, it helps in my head space is I really hope that, you know, the bees that are Maybe struggling to get through this time of year, which is the way it goes. You could look at a colony in the beginning of February, early February, and come see it again late March, and it succumbed in that time period. And I don't wish that on anybody, but that's what happens. And a lot of beekeepers look at their stuff on a warm day somewhere in February and think they're good to go, and then come back to March and find disappointment. It just comes with the territory. Don't be frustrated by it. Remember now that, yes, the queen is probably working on laying some bees at this period of time, but all the bees in that colony probably came from October, November, December last year. And other than the handful that the queen laid late in the year and through winter, they're all old. And hopefully they have enough to sustain and keep going. But usually at this point, other than a couple emergency feeding activities, if that's what you're needing, uh, there's not much you could do, but just hope that they hang on. I wanted to talk a little bit about something since we're not in the bees 
The crocus in the yard survived the snowfall, if you could call it that. We had a light dusting here about a week or so ago. Um, my mother-in-law owned the property that we're on. We bought the house from Sharon's parents. And back in the day, I want to say probably 20 to 30 years ago, she she planted just a couple crocus with the anticipation that they would propagate. If you look at the front of our property, out along the creek, there's a swath there that's maybe the size of a tennis court, and it's covered in crocus, and they self-propagate all the way through. Sharon's made it a point to plant daffodils and crocus at other places on our property, and you know, you'd be surprised as the years sneak by how they self-spread, and they make such a great plant for this time of year when the bees are out scrabbling to find something. So this fall, as you plan your beekeeping season, make it a point to plant some of those. Not sure how long you plan to be in the place you're in, but if you're going to be there a while, you will reap the benefit. We have different patches of crocus blooms, snowdrops, and other things that are around our property, and it's at the foresight of my mother-in-law uh, planting all her plants. She loved to plant for her bees when she had them back in the day. And one of the interesting things, given I said that it's along the creek, is occasionally the creek comes and it erodes the dirt and washes the soil and changes the features. And it picks up the crocus and the snowdrops and other things and it deposits them across downstream. And so other parts of our property have these crocus we've never planted them there and then they self-propagate there too so it's kind of neat to see how that all works and you know this is the time of year when you're making your plants that you might think i'm going to order some of those and come fall plant them and reap the benefit of that in a couple of years what do I have to say? I'm, I'm looking forward. The next couple of weeks is going to be game on. I'm in the garage working on getting some things done, prepping. I really have to do something that I haven't gotten to, and I'm usually done by now. I have to walk hive by hive and think, what am I going to do with this hive and make a plan? If you haven't done that, this is the time of year. Don't procrastinate. And I've said this before. It's so important to have a game plan and have stuff staged because in the spring things move so fast that you know you'll find yourself out doing yard work or whatever and think to yourself I need to go take care of that colony it's got x going on and it's going to swarm or it's going to do something or I plan to do splits and I need to have equipment for it make your plan Plan the work, work the plan. It's really important this time of year while you have the last few weeks of cold, if you're like us, to get that sorted out. I remember doing that last year and was so grateful in those times when I had to go get a box and went back and foundation was ready, frames were built, boxes were painted, cleaned, scraped, ready to go. It really makes spring a lot easier and fluid. So... This is the final time of year where you have your last couple of weeks before game on to get your stuff prepped. Don't procrastinate. Go tell whoever it is in your life that you're going to spend some quality time over the next couple nights and the next weekends or whatever getting your stuff prepped. You'll thank yourself for it in time. So with that, I think that's where I'm going to end it. Look live report. Check. All done. And I think uh, let's just go into a couple of closing comments and get you out of here. 
I wanted to share an experience recently that our Northwest Club did and make a connection to some of you who are part of beekeepers associations with the onslaught of COVID and the disconnect of operating remotely or not having meetings at all. One of the things our Northwest Club realized is it's been difficult to connect with new beekeepers. So they tried something novel and interesting. I hinted at this in the opening. They held a bowling night. Nothing to do with beekeeping, just come out and go bowling. They rented two or three or four lanes, I don't remember what it is, had a little bit of a pizza party catering thing going on, and just opened it up to come on out, go bowling, have a little bit of fun, and we had a blast. Went to it, got to meet some new beekeepers who showed up, so in that context, it was mission accomplished, and thought it was a rather novel and creative thing that our association did to try and connect to new beekeepers good time of year to try this too. Um, yes, they did spend a little of the money of the association, but in the context of trying to foster connections and goodwill and get people to uh, know each other, I think um, one or two mentors might have been found at that type of meeting too. So in that context, uh, mission accomplished, good for them for trying it. Uh, hopefully that will parlay into more people participating in the association and, you know, sometimes something not directly involved around beekeeping, but a mixer can go a long way and I applaud them for the try and just wanted to share that out loud with anybody as you might consider different things to try and get connected with your membership. So it's early in the morning for me here on a Sunday. I'm going to uh, plot out and go do a bunch of things with the chainsaw. So that should make for a fun day. And it's off to manage mentoring land for creating more content this afternoon and cup race. You know, typical Sunday activity. Hopefully you're having a good day wherever you're at and where you're listening. And with that, I guess I'll close the episode down and say thanks for coming in. We'll see you next time. On the Beekeeper's Corner, like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, we can accomplish great things. Thanks for listening, everybody. Take care.